0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: And Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean. I write the blog, Unpickled, which I started on my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to tell your story here. And today we're talking to a gorgeous Canadian blogger with a bright white mohawk and a zest for life who you may recognize just from that description. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Julie of SoberJulie.com. And, um, you know, we want to talk today about living our recovery out loud, blogging about it, and maybe breaking some of the stigma and shame, but also just how people get to that point in their life where they're willing to share their story and feeling like um, maybe stepping outside of our comfort zone is worth it for the benefit of others. So I'm really excited to talk to Julie today. She's been on the show before, and um, today we're going to hear more about her story. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, Julie. Thank you so much for having
2: me. It's one of my favorite places to be.
1: Oh, that's so kind of you. You You've been on this show a couple times, and and we always love talking to you. And I love following your Facebook page because you do lots of live Facebook stuff, which just makes me feel like I'm in your kitchen hanging out with you. And you always make such good food. I swear to God I can taste it over the video. I swear to God. It surprises me I've never actually had coffee with you in your kitchen because I feel like I'm there. (laughs) I know. We have to
2: rectify that at some point.
1: Yes. For sure. Well, let's start today with your story, Julie. Like, just take us back and tell us how Julie became Sober Julie.
2: Okay. Um, You know, I grew up in a British household. So in here where I live in the suburbs outside of Toronto, Ontario, um, the town was just filled with immigrants and my parents happened to be from England and their friends from Ireland and so on. So it was very much the drinking culture Mother didn't drink, but father drank, so there was alcohol all around growing up. My first sip was in grade 7 in a friend's basement, and I thought it was the most horrific thing I'd ever tried. I had this vision that I didn't want to be out of control, the way I'd seen so many adults around me. So I was one of those people where I was always the designated driver from 16 on and, and didn't really get into drinking until, I think, It was, I didn't go straight to college after high school. I stuck around our small town and I worked um, deciding what I was going to do. And frankly, there wasn't a lot to do except for go to the bars. So soon enough, I began binge drinking on weekends. But then I I think what saved me from knowing that I had an issue with alcohol was that I went to college. And when I went to college, I actually commuted. So I was, and and then I worked on weekends. So it wasn't as obvious that I was been drinking because it didn't happen every weekend so this continued on I met met my husband um you know at 27 years old and I can't even tell you between the years of 19 and 27 how many blackout weekends I had it was there was never one drink for me never and all the people around me seemed to be the same way it was just the way it was when you went out to party you went out hardcore and you waited till the weekend to do it which I think is we see it a lot in I guess the stereotype is the college life. You know, you work really hard at your classes and then you just let loose. Well, I continued that through past my first uh, college diploma. And that's how I lived my adult life. I was making my bills. I was working three jobs. But as soon as I could pick up a drink, it was drinking to oblivion. Mm. And many, many, many regrets along the way. Um you know, but to everybody on the outside, at least in my circles, I was kind of the mover and groover and who people wanted to hang out with. I knew where the gatherings were. I got us into the VIP clubs, you know, things like this. And then I met my husband, and he's a completely normal drinker. He's very odd to me. I remember being on a date and going out with friends, and we went to a pub, and he ordered a Guinness. And in the time it took him to drink the Guinness, I don't even know how many drinks I had. <laughs> And it was just completely weird to have somebody who could be a designated driver by choice, not because they were obliged to. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So as you can imagine, our relationship, um, we were two different people in that regard anyways. Um, But we got married, fell in love, and frankly, my weekends were still binge drinking. So I was binge drinking, but for the first time I had somebody with me who could remember everything. (laughs) And... He quickly learned not to tell me everything because I couldn't handle it. And this ate away at me slowly. We had two children during pregnancy. I was, I didn't drink during breastfeeding. I didn't drink because I think I was the person who always, I was waiting for it. I was waiting to drink. So as I'm breastfeeding my second child, I I remember having the thought at the two month mark, okay, am I safe to stop breastfeeding now? Because I need a drink. And that's, That's sad, Mm -hmm. and it's indicative of this inability to relax and this void that I kept trying to stuff alcohol into to fix it. And, you know, uh, so I soon enough did give up the breastfeeding earlier than I probably would have. And as the girls were growing up, I had um, a mother's helper who came on Friday nights, and she was there for 4 p.m., and I would start drinking at 5 and I didn't wake up on the Saturday until well into the day. So between the mommy's helper and my husband, they were parenting the kids for a good portion of the week while I drank. And I was functioning really well at my job, huge accolades and rising up the ladder and doing well for myself. But at what expense? I I took no energy on self-improvement or my spirituality, no time for those sorts of things. With the family, I was probably giving, I don't even know, just less of myself because I was completely preoccupied with waiting for Friday night and the shame. And then, you know, early in the week, I was ill from drinking all weekend and hiding from the shame of whatever it was I did. And it got to the point where the hatred of myself was too much. Sorry, I'm just getting over a cold. And what was What's funny about it now is I've had the opportunity to speak to many people who were friends with us at that time, who I would be hosting here at the house while drinking and everything, and they had no idea how much I drank because my power drinking actually started after the guests left. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, the guests would leave, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, and I would just start power drinking. And then my husband used to say, there's no point ever having a wine rack in our home because I would finish everything that was available before I would go to bed, if I made it to bed, because I would often pass out just, you know, wherever. So this all kind of came to a head probably in 2008. I realized that it was through conversation with my husband. He had had enough. And and I went to a 12-step meeting, and I approached it in the way that I approached everything in my life. If I try hard enough and study hard enough, I can master it. So I went in, I sat through a meeting, weeping, bought the book, left, never returned to a meeting, read the book, and didn't drink for two months. And I didn't do anything socially. I, you know, completely absorbed myself in my children. I had no identity of my own, nor was I seeking it. I was just trying not to drink. Completely white-knuckling every day, knowing that, you know, my life was over, basically, was how I looked at things. And then I started drinking again and it got worse and my incline got a lot steeper or my decline. And, um, down I went into a place where by February, 2010, um, I hated myself. I hated myself in my sober hours and I hated myself in my drinking hours and all my behaviors reflected this. I was combative. I was nasty, negative, And, um, And I mean that when I was drinking. When I was sober, I was trying so hard to cover everything up and apologize that I was doing everything for everybody else. I was this silly, silly scrambling wheel that went one way, then the other, one way, then the other. And um, so I woke up one Saturday morning and my eyes hadn't even opened. And I used to wake up with this sense of dread after drinking, this this, like pause where I would almost hold my breath to wait and see what was going to come could I remember anything? What did I lose? How mad is my husband? Do my friends hate me? You know, things like that. And on this morning I knew something big had happened and um, I had Facebooked um, a suicide note in a message. My husband's name is Brad and in my drunken state, I sent it to the wrong Brad. I sent it to a public school friend in the middle of the night. And he had seen it first thing in the morning and he had reached out to my husband and forwarded the message and said, do you want us to, and keep in mind, he didn't know my husband. He offered for he and his wife to come over that day to sit and talk with us. So suddenly my hidden behavior that I somehow felt like I hid so well was no longer hidden. And also the fact that I had openly talked about suicide and being at that point which I'd never done up till now I suddenly knew that I one day would do that in one of my drunken stupors I knew I could had the potential to fulfill that the fear of that and the fear of not being there for my children and the reality the absolute cold reality of alcoholism finally hit me so hard that I was less scared of a life with alcohol than I was of what my life with alcohol was had become and so that day My husband and I sat down and talked and I did something I'd never done, which was reach out to my sister who I was somewhat close to, but I always had resentments towards her. And I reached out and told her that I think I'm an alcoholic and I'm going for help. And I found 12 step meetings and it began from there. So that's kind of how I came to realize I was an alcoholic.
1: Julie, my heart feels heavy as you tell that story because the the scramble that you described, the oscillation between, I wasn't a blackout drinker, but I know like the regret and shame versus the daytime, you know, compensation kind of over yeah. what doing to compensate kind of life. It's such a heavy burden. It's such a heavy load. And whenever I talk to people that are in, you know, new to recovery and they're in that I can feel the weight of that burden on my body. Like just as you're telling it, I can feel my chest get heavy and just remember what it feels like to carry that load. Versus, And when you're carrying it, you're unaware of it. That's the worst right, thing. Right. It feels normal. And, and you're so exhausted from carrying it that alcohol is, becomes your relief from it. And yet... Uh, it's a catch-22 because you think it's the release, but it's also the cause. And you just get in this spiral that there. It's it feels like a perfect equilibrium for a short period of time, and then you can't get out of it, and it just starts to spin off course. And so it really, it's such a contrast to me from the heaviness of remembering what that feels like versus I can hear the freedom and strength in your voice today that, would have sounded different you know there's when people are are in that there's like a sharpness to their voice and uh you know their laugh is harsher and they just there's just there's an extra burden on there so i can literally hear the difference in you even though i didn't know you back then um
2: yeah and the difference is huge in in new recovery pardon me in new recovery what mm-hmm. i actually found was i didn't know how to be quiet right i didn't i didn't have a clue how to not dominate a conversation, how to sit and
1: absorb. Right. And that has been a gift of recovery for me. Don't you think that's part of the BS smokescreen that addiction causes us to just fill every empty moment with noise and energy? And for me it was busyness and work so that no one, like I was afraid if there was a pause. First of all, I didn't want to self-reflect. And second of all, I didn't want anyone to see me not move they might they might actually see me if I wasn't in motion exactly, and, um, so did twelve step is that where you learned how to listen and engage differently where did Where did that come from?
2: yeah, I would say uh the twelve step I started from day one and just kept going I kept going to meetings, and I connected with people and got a short-term sponsor. And then um, and things were going really well and I was beginning to learn to be in my own skin quietly. It was a long process, so it didn't happen very, you know, in the new beginning. But three weeks after I had gotten sober, I was involved in a pretty major car accident on my way home from work. Uh, during bad weather, somebody else lost control. And so um, that actually gave me some significant injuries uh, back injuries, muscular inju- injuries, and a brain injury. And so actually the brain injury caused wicked migraines. And when you have a migraine, you can't talk very much. So it taught me I didn't have a choice. It's funny the way the way it all happened. I truly believe that I far too much defined myself by my career prior to sobriety. And then with sobriety, I had lost a part of who I was. And then I believed that God needed me to be even more humble and needed me to take a break from that career in order to find the humility. Hmm. So it was a super quiet life. And thankfully, (laughs) my friends from the 12-step program picked me up every day and got me to meetings and that saved me from the PTSD and the depression from injuries and things like that because i th- i went from being an executive to not being able to work it was it was removed from my hands i was completely incapable and with wow. that comes a form of desperation of who am i right you know and booze wasn't an option for me to turn to to fill another void so through these um the 12 step meetings every day they became the one thing i looked forward to and irrelevant of what pain I was in, I went and I sat and I listened and I saw it. And it was only because I was willing. I was willing to sit and listen and figure this out.
0: Right.
1: That's that is really powerful. I'm I'm going through something similar on a much smaller scale right now because I've broken my leg, and um, I I'm forced to be a bit of a hermit this January. <laughs> yeah. And it's coming really hard to me. And I keep thinking, thank God I'm sober. Thank God I'm sober, and thank God I have learned to be still, and to be grateful, and all of these things that I've learned in recovery these past few years are serving me really well um, through this injury. And I, I can only imagine how hard something on a much grander scale must have been for you at that time. And so one of, as you talk about learning to listen, and that's something that we call holding space for other people, which for me, was a really um, new concept. I, I had never had a conversation where I didn't fill every gap or let someone just speak their truth without trying to throw it back at them with my perspective or my advice. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain what it means to hold space for someone? Well, I think holding
2: space, to be able to do holding space, the first thing you have to realize is that it, um, people want, when people are speaking a lot, it's from a place of insecurity, usually, if they're speaking over people, or if they're over relating, if they're trying to over relate,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. that's insecurity. And so what we have to do is this practice of, as soon as somebody else's lips start moving, we have to stop and, and truly listen to them. And that's honoring them and their words. And it's, it's being of service to another human being, number one. Number two, if you it's the quietest I can be is actually not when I'm sitting in silence by myself, but when I'm sitting in front of somebody and they're speaking, Mm. that's the most quiet I can be in a day. And the reason is I have to shut off my thoughts as well and absorb what's coming in. And we're inclined to, to relate to them and give back to them and gift them with that. And there is a time and a place for that, but there's a time and a place where you want the person's heart to be fully heard because so many of us give little bits of ourselves or the facade of ourselves. And it's with when I'm with those quiet people in those, those times where they're sitting listening that I do it with my 13-year-old. It's the funniest thing, and maybe this is a silly thing to relate it to. My 13-year-old is almost all surface. She is surface running when she's talking to me about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so-and-so. To get my 13-year-old daughter to speak of her heart, of her feelings of anxiety and things like that, means I have to get her to a point where she can slow down and recognize it. Mm -hmm. And I have to first allow her to exhaust the energy. And the only way to do that is by me being quiet to let that ball roll down. Am I answering your question? I'm just kind of just going on a
1: tangent. No, (laughs) I love this. And I I can't help but think of what a different mom you would be in this situation if you were drinking because you would join her on that surface and feed that energy right that's what i would have done oh yeah
2: oh completely because i love the energy i have to admit i'm the mom when i have a gaggle of girls in the kitchen and we're making bath bombs i'm as excitedly talking as they are i just am but then it's after i i have to i've learned this and when i think of somebody who's new to sobriety all of the extra energy they have and all of the pent-up feelings that want to come out. Um, if you're new in sobriety, find a sponsor and let that shit come out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to – I'm swearing, but let you it can. come out. That's what that's what a sponsor is for. It's the person who you can go and you can unload. And once you've unloaded, what happens is you don't feel fantastic. The world isn't fixed but suddenly the extra energy is exhausted, it's gone, it's out there. So you're able to then look at the real stuff, right. the real things. You know, sometimes we have to get the froth off the top of the beverage to see the milk underneath it if it's poured too fast.
1: I feel like a lot of us tried to do that with our friends while we were drinking, like we'd be in a room full of other women drinking wine, and we're all like, blah, 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 blah,
0: blah, Yeah.
1: Serving some instinct to try to offload that, but because it, yeah. there's also like a protective instinct at the same time that wants to protect your drinking and keep it going, that's sort of misguided versus the quiet honesty of setting your truth on the table in a safe environment with somebody who isn't going to judge you, isn't going to tell you what you should do with that. They're just going like, to let you truth bomb on the table and say like, hey, let, let's just stare this thing in the face and sit with it. Let's get comfortable with the truth in the room. That's and right. that's profound for someone who's terrified and running from that truth all the time. It's a real gift. And it's to me, it was the scariest part of getting sober was that, how am I going to BS my way through life without oh. this You know how like who am I if I'm not this facade that I've created of this strong business person and and like to some extent I really am that person. It's just I've so fortified it with busyness that I couldn't I couldn't imagine who I would really be because I couldn't actually ask what I really wanted. So how did yeah and I
2: didn't I didn't have a single role model who was sober or even a light drinker. I didn't. There wasn't a single person in my circle who forget forget ever hearing of somebody who was recovered, right? Or in recovery, there was nobody that I was aware of that was in recovery, right? So there was no 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 modeling of
1: that.
0: Well, that's
2: (laughs) it. I wasn't exactly looking for that. (laughs) That's not who I wanted to hang out with on a Friday night, you know. And uh, it wasn't. It's it's all perspective, and that is part of the letting the energy run out, learning to be quiet, all these things. Life is what we perceive it to be. If we're perceiving negative, and if we only see the negative, then our experience is going to be negative. Where if we can come to the quiet place, and that happens with a sponsor, with doing the steps, with going to the program, with talking to other alcoholics, you know, um, if we can come to that quiet place, and we can find gratitude in everything then our experience will be one that we're grateful for.
1: It is a game changer, isn't it? It sounds too. It is too easy to be true. It's like when people <coughs> used to say to me, "Just breathe," and I think, like, f off, just breathe. Yeah. Like, uh, it takes Up me yours. half a gallon of wine to settle down. How is just breathe going to help? But
2: I remember after my accident, one of the old guys. I was in the in the rooms, and I was, you know, lamenting about. I can't even stand up for a half an hour to load the dishwasher. And I have two kids that my friend is coming over and raising every night, and I'm sober, and why is God doing this to me, and yada, yada. And I remember an old guy coming up to me at the meeting and looking me in the face, and he says, Julie, you got to remember that people have been through worse, that you're here, you're breathing, and any man can fight the battle of just one day. Hmm. And I was like, who the hell are you, old man? (laughs) You have no idea what I'm going through. And, you know, the, these thoughts, you have no idea, even when you're talking, my head hurts and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, woe is me. And it wasn't until I truly changed my attitude, you know, and and learned that when I was laying on the couch, stuck on the couch, watching my friend make dinner for my children, instead of being like, I can't believe I can't get up, I changed my life, blah, 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 I started saying, I am so blessed to have her, Right. I remember loading the dishwasher, resenting my husband the day before for not loading it. And then the day I was the next day when I was loading it saying, I'm so glad I'm able to load a dishwasher.
1: Right. Or that I have a dishwasher. Or that I have made right. yeah.
2: and right, people to or I with. have
1: food for that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it's it's it sounds so rudimentary and it sounds so fake and it will feel fake, but I'm telling the people who are new to sobriety or even Listen, I'm almost seven years sober, and I fall into the trap of having negative thoughts Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and allowing the negative thoughts to just roll without controlling them and stopping Mm -hmm. them and replacing them. It's a mindfulness, and it took a while to learn, but it's fake it till you make it. Put in the happy mindfulness, the grateful-mindedness. I wouldn't say happy. I hate the word happy because happiness is... Happiness is bloody relative, let's be real. I'm not looking to experience a quote-unquote happy life because what I perceive that to be each day can change. I'm looking to, it's true. Like today, sun would make me really happy because I live in Ontario in the winter. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm looking to experience a fulfilling
1: life, a satisfying life. Gratitude, you know, when it, I have to say when it comes to gratitude, even if it sounds too good to be true, just test this out. Anyone listening who thinks they need something to change their life and gratitude seems too easy, write three things when you get out of bed in the morning that you're grateful for and before you go to bed at night. Just do that for a week, even if you don't yep. believe it's going to change you. Try it. Or try it for 30 days. And it it will. You'll feel a shift. It's amazing. Um, so here's the second thing that I think is a big shift, um, a big change, game changer for me, and I'm curious your thoughts on it, and that is service. What are your thoughts on service helping others? You know, it's funny because service to me always
2: seems like, okay, I've got to go in and make the coffee at meetings or I've got to go and buy people things or, you know, these sorts of things. Service is integral to my experience in life. Service is the foundation of my humility and humility to me equals purpose. Okay. Mm-hmm. So service to me can mean as little as opening a door for someone. Do you know what? I was in a, an office supply store this morning and I was purchasing some things and I was, and I was rushing. I was in a rush and there was a gaggle of teenagers and who would come for lunch to buy whatever. And they were, meandering in an area in front of me and I could not get around them down the aisle and immediate reflex was to be irritable mm-hmm. like I'm super in important in my own world I need to get through get out of my way how dare you you're annoying and then something flashed up at me Grace, show some grace show some grace so instead I'm like hey guys how's it going you having a good day Yeah. and they're like oh so I should move, ahead, move aside and they weren't super polite. They were kind of attitude-y, you know, teenagers. And that, to me, is of service. And service means putting others before yourself no matter what it is. Now, I don't mean to the detriment of your well-being, obviously, because right. people-pleasing is not what I'm referring to. I'm right. talking about opening a door and stepping back and letting a person through, even if you are in a rush.
1: Right, yeah.
2: You it's know, not, reaching out so to
1: a ways. friend. Yeah, it's, it's Or being a model to those, uh, to those young women, of just I mean you could have what what you did would make an impression on them, right? They'd yeah. be like, oh, that old bag. They'd be laughing at yeah, like it all I, day.
2: I have to tell you, I sought out eye contact and smiled. And so they may not even remember me, but there was a smile in their day and a graciousness that rather than me be Mrs. Important, gotta get through, I'm more important than you.
1: Right. You know, I wanna to relate to you that for the last several weeks my husband has had to wait on me hand and foot um, mm-hmm. literally because um, he's got, you know he brings the coffee upstairs to the bedroom and he makes he sets yep. me up for the day and then he goes to work and he does his job and mine and mm-hmm. you know he brings home lunch so he's doing the groceries he's doing the laundry he's doing you know the work for two and yep. I've been super grateful and as the time goes on two things are happening. he's burning out uh, yes. so he's running a little bit out of energy. <gasps> And I'm starting to um take things for granted a little bit. You know, like yesterday 12 o'clock <laughs> rolls around and I'm hungry and I I want to text him and be like, Could you get home with lunch? Like <laughs> yeah. 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 I am sitting here bored out of my mind. All I'm looking forward to is having lunch with you. Where the heck are you? But but I you know, I stopped myself from doing that. So I'm getting a little bit I'm starting to take for granted his kindness. He's starting to to get tired of doing everything. And and so both of us are sort of moving apart from each other on the contentment scale. And I was kind of, I didn't like where I was getting to because I thought I'm getting a little bit itchy, irritable, and cranky, and it doesn't feel good. And I have two more weeks of this to get through. And it's going to be really awful for both of us um, if this attitude persists and gets any worse. So I started making an effort to really explore what can I do. How can I do things differently? And um, finding that, gosh, you know, I'm not quite as sore. I can move around a little bit more. And um, I can, like, get down the stairs and get myself a cup of coffee in the morning, even if I have to drink it standing at the sink. That saves him doing it for me. So even though it's not necessarily what I want, my little bit of discomfort is a service to him because that's one less thing he has to do today. And then yesterday I I was like, oh, maybe I can stand on one leg and reach down into the cupboard and get the toaster out and hop over to the fridge and get the to-, you know. And So I managed to make us each a piece of toast in the morning. He walks in the kitchen and he's like, wow, you made me breakfast. <laughs> and like, I like, It's a big deal. I was like a five-year-old, you know, like, look, honey, I made breakfast. but. See that was service, and it totally flipped me back onto not only like a service, then fed gratitude and fueled us both. So, and that's what see, happens. Yeah, you
2: know, ser- service is it's it's when something's either uncomfortable or a bit of a stretch for you. Yeah, it's an effort you're making not to get a thank you.
1: Right. Yeah. L- like right. the
2: intention. The true, the true feeling of service comes to you when you don't care if the person acknowledges it or not.
1: Right. So your goal is to extend kindness, and yes. with no expectation. Like the kindness That's, itself is the goal.
2: Exactly. And in sobri, in early sobriety, man, I was just after the car accident, so I was a lot like you. I mean, my husband had to pick up my slack for a good year and a half. And it felt really difficult to find ways to be of service, so I actually turned online. I couldn't get out, so I turned online to figure out how I could help people with words of encouragement, you know, in a Facebook message or whatever it was, just trying to connect with people in any way to make their heart a little lighter.
1: And is that where your blog was born? Tell us about the origins of your blog.
2: Sure. So... Uh, immediately after the accident, I was pretty much bedbound or couchbound, and um, type A personality, I was stir crazy. So I started reading blogs and I was Googling. Um, for years, I was very computer online and computer oriented. So, um, you know, in new recovery or before recovery, Googling things like sober woman, sober this, sober that, like just trying to find stories of sobriety. And um, I found the time there were a handful of people out there blogging as you know there weren't like millions Um, but it was it was all about new recovery and that's great so about I think it was like I was like six months over when I started this little blog part of the reason was because of my brain injury I had no short-term memory so that summer we had gone to a cottage and I had these photos of myself with the kids from, from like literally the week before and I didn't remember anything wow. about what was in the photos. I had no recollection. So I decided to start SoberJulie.com on a free little WordPress site um, just to actually remind myself of things. So if you read the uh, early posts, they're actually pretty humorous. I you know, wrote about an ugly recliner that I bought at a garage sale that it was actually comfortable to sit in. I wrote about mundane, everyday things. And what actually ended up happening was people started reading. Um, which kind of shocked me. What do you mean you want to read my stuff? (laughs) And uh, like it was, you know, that whole feeling of you see 14 people have read it. I'm like,
0: what? 14 people? That's fabulous.
2: (laughs) And so I'm there writing and trying really hard not to swear because I tend to do that in my own head, at least when I'm thinking about things. And um, so the blog began and it was like a diary journal slash encouragement for myself and others. And then, over time, as more readers came um I wrote about continue to write about life my My blog has never just been about sobriety, but sobriety is in all aspects of my life. My recovery is my life, so really, what it is now is um family, food, health travel,
0: mm-hmm.
2: with recovery as an undercurrent within all of it,
1: right. And that I I love that that's what it is because it shows that re- recovery doesn't stay in a bento box in a basement in a church it permeates everything that you do and life is full and exciting and interesting and you're not sad you're not bored you're not that's the question yeah. everyone has what's my life going to be like if I quit drinking, how am I going to travel without alcohol as being That's part right. of the fun? How am I going to cook without wine? How am I going to X, Y, Z, you know? And and um, yeah. so I love that all of that is encompassed in your blog. And let's talk about the practicality of blogging because I often recommend people do start up a blog if they, like you say, like if they have that those layers of truth to explore and peel off and and put out in the world, it can be a really useful way to do that, don't you find?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I say to people all the time, I don't care whether you blog, you write in a journal, whatever you want. The first thing I'll say is this. You can set up a blog for free. You can make it public or private. Mm -hmm. You can write, literally, journal for yourself in an online format where nobody will find it because they don't have the password to see it. So there's safety. There's safety in that, um, but if you want to pluck apart your thoughts and feelings, it's an awesome way to do that.
1: Yeah, and you can you can make your blog public, but also stay anonymous. I mean, you. I said oh anonymous. yeah, I did that. Anonymous. I was uh, so anonymous. I, I, you were a, you were anonymous too. <laughs> I, was. I, I was. I was anonymous, anonymous for, nine for a long months.
0: time. <laughs> yeah. What nine made you decide to I, be public?
2: Um, it was an error, actually.
0: It was really? an Tell error. That.
2: Yeah, it was. It was uh, my cousin shared one of my posts and said how proud he was of me. <laughs> yeah. And, and so then- I ran with it. I was like, okay, I'm out. You know, it is what it is, and it was done inadvertently, and uh, he would never have meant to, you know. Yeah. So I just grabbed a hold of it and went with it and put the face to the brand and decided to – what? I mean – If I honestly had thought that people may not have guessed I was an alcoholic back when I was drinking, like a friend said to me, Julie, did you really think that time you fell down the stairs and then got up and drank another bottle of wine that people didn't think there might be a problem? (laughs) I'm like, huh,
1: well, maybe you're right, really. Yeah. You know, uh, my dad has uh, Parkinson's disease and and he has good days and bad days, but the ironic part for him is he doesn't remember his bad days, right? So he doesn't always know when he's been like talking to family members that have been dead for 30 years or when he's done something that's a little off. And then he can't figure out why we're all so worried about him or, you know, like, why won't, why don't you guys let me drive anymore? I'm fine. And it's because he doesn't remember the days where he gets lost just going down the hallway. And, um, you know, to because for him it's an illness and it's not. There's no changing it. We try to protect him from that and and roll with it and and cushion him from that. But there's some correlation to drinking oh, in is. that. Like we think like I'm doing just fine. Nobody can see the cracks yep. in my armor. But yeah, we don't know. You know, especially for blackout drinkers, you don't know what people saw. I think I wasn't a blackout drinker, but I think I had like a desperation. In my eyes, that was visible to other people who know that look.
2: You no. Know? Oh yeah.
1: I think we can I think see it yeah.
2: I You can feel you can feel a permeating unhappiness from anybody who who doesn't have a normal, healthy relationship with alcohol.
1: Yeah.
2: It's just the way it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and you can also tell when they're not ready. So sometimes we just yes. got to send them a little bit of love, you know, from our heart to the, theirs and and um, wish the best for them. Uh, I often see ladies in the grocery store who just have that worn out look and maybe, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, I can tell in the grocery store who has a drinking problem. I can, But you can sort of just see that air of exhaustion that maybe it isn't coming out as an alcohol problem, maybe it's coming out in other ways. But, yeah, I just I try and send them love or just catch their eye and uh, give them a smile, you know, like you said, like just just to a show birth. them kindness.
2: Yeah. Just pay it Uh, forward, right? Show the grace that we wished we'd been shown and a soft kindness, however you can. Like, my parents have, we moved my elderly parents in with us, like, three and a half years ago. Both heavy drinkers, both what I would have classified as alcoholics before they moved in with us. Um, So they moved in with the That must have been a hell of
1: a decision, Julie.
2: Holy. It it really was. I mean, my husband and I both say to each other, like, many times, what the hell were we thinking, you know? But... (laughs) But, you know, it's like a circus. <laughs> I enjoy activity. But we <laughs> invited them to live with us with the agreement that there would be no drunk in this. We know they enjoy their drinks, and for them to have a couple in the evening, they have their own living room. It's not a problem. You know, it's separated, and that's up to them. But quickly to realize, no, no, this is like over-the-top alcoholism. And um, my mother in specific, because she, my dad doesn't, didn't ever walk around much, he's and pretty much an invalid, and uh, but my mother, however, you know, would be in the common areas of the house, in our kitchen, in our living room, and things like that. And the behaviors were um, like very not offensive, you know, never unfriendly, never this or that. But she was drunk and a blackout drinker; didn't remember anything. And it was it was every night, mm. and there was food being made at two, three in the morning. I mean, there's nothing like waking up to the smell of bacon at three in the morning. <laughs> And saying, what the heck is going on? I have to work tomorrow, you know, or the kids have school tomorrow, or these things. So it came, but I waited, and there were lots of very frank discussions about behaviors the night before. I wasn't sweeping anything under the rug. We were kindly telling everything to her and kindly letting her know it was coming to a head. And that, you know, there's going to come a point where we're not going to be able to accept it in our household anymore. It's got to stop. And so it was with this kindness that my bottom line was drawn. And um, she ended up going to detox. And she's nine months sober now. Wow. Yeah, and so that patience for other people while they're in their own illness, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: that was a toughie to learn. And I thank God for my 12-step programs for that. Because (laughs) I learned that codependency is not cool for me and for my health. You know, being that, inclined, being inclined to fix everything as I am.
1: It's a fine you know, line I'll, to to stand your ground and to honor your truth and honor your recovery, and let someone yeah. else wait until they're ready. I I find that hard, even as a recovery advocate. You know, I when people write to me and they, I can tell they want to quit, and I feel like, okay, I'm going to help them and they're going to get better. But the fact is, if, if they're not ready. They're not ready and um Yeah. Their their willingness is, is the missing piece no matter how much we want it for them. That's I, right. I mean it took it me
2: too many years, you know, for years and years I'm sure I, I knew in my heart I had a problem. Where I'm sure people told me, you know, I remember, whoa, Julie, you know, you were out of hand last night, you gotta take it easy. You know, things like that. Where things were brought to my attention but I wasn't ready.
1: It wasn't happening because I wasn't there yet. <laughs> Um, Let's talk for a minute about the online world, the recovery-friendly web, as some call it. How has that changed in your perspective over the last seven years uh, since you started Mm. your blog? I think it's a completely different space
2: than it was seven years ago as far as the recovery end. There's so many amazing writers out there right now where if somebody is looking at all to get some inspiration or information or anything, thankfully there's so many articles out there now. Mm-hmm. There's people who are willing to share. There's a certain awareness. And I really do hope that we're killing this stigma that comes with alcoholism because the one thing I'll say is to anybody listening, the person who's an alcoholic would never choose logically to be an alcoholic. Right. It would never happen. Nobody would choose this for themselves. And so with that being said, I think the stigma has to be shattered. And, um, I, I mean, I respect everybody's choice as far as the anonymous end goes. Be anonymous if you want to. I personally choose not to only because I made a decision at at one point that said, I'm going to be out there to be the person that I was looking for. Yeah. You know, I, I'm willing to bring people in to look at where I'm traveling. And I travel a lot. And I'm, I go to all-inclusives. And, you know, I do these things. And I show why it's still a good experience. I without love that. the boost.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, you go to an all-inclusive. Why bother? People say it's it can't be worth the money. Blah blah blah. Dude, it is cheaper usually to fly from Canada all-inclusive. It's yeah. just the way it is. The flight the flight is basically free.
1: Do you find? I, so. well, let's talk for a quick minute about that. I went to an all-inclusive a few years ago, and um, and it was I was with a group wedding. So be it said, I yeah. was with forty people who were drunk from the moment we got to the airport oh, yeah. till the moment oh, we yeah. got back again. So that could have been part of my discomfort. Um, but I, I spent a lot more time in my room than anyone else. Like, do you have any tips for how to not lose your mind when you're surrounded by not only alcohol, yeah. but other people using alcohol? Do you have a few tips on that? Yeah. Usually at
2: most all-inclusive resorts, there's a whole nother lifestyle other than the drinking. So there are groups that are health conscious. There's groups that just don't drink. There's whatever. There's usually a quiet pool. There's not usually just one pool. There's usually a quieter pool. Go there. At kids' pool, you're not going to see the same kind of huge hammeredness. Go there. I personally don't go to the disco after a certain time of night. I'm not interested. I seek out the lobby bar at that point and watch the band who's playing in there. There's always specialty coffees. If you go to the bar and tell them you don't drink alcohol, but you want a drink with fresh fruits, you can usually get it. So I, I have them make me special mocktails and things, and I create... Create a relationship with them where it becomes a challenge for them. Um, there's usually early morning yoga or like I tend to look for the more active events and things. Um, I also am pretty picky about excursions. I, don't, I look for words like party boat. I'll ask the travel agent or look up the reviews to make sure I'm not going to be stuck on a party boat in excursions. And I personally choose my hotel quite carefully. I look for I I do. You can you can find out if there's hotels that are health centric, and they're not usually much more of a price point. It's just that, like there are. I don't know how to say it. There's different resorts for different things, and if you're seeking one where you're not a drinker, you're not looking for the party atmosphere. Talk to your travel agent about that. Look on TripAdvisor, look on these online sites, and look at the reviews. And if you know there will be quieter areas where to have your room there's always quieter pools there's quiet areas of the beach you know on and on get out and go explore the local grab a local cab get the hotel to to arrange it for you so that it's a reputable company and go on a tour of the island for the day those
1: are the kind of things that we do it's like take your blinders off <laughs> is what you're saying
2: <laughs> yeah i mean all inclusive i used to hear all inclusive but i'd be like hammered sun up sundown woohoo how many bars i I'm literally booked I booked my Cuban um, honeymoon based on the fact that it had seven bars and three were 24
0: hours.
2: (laughs) That is all I cared about. Whereas now I look at the quality of the mattresses. Like I'm I'm old as well. That's part of it. It's true. But I look at the quality of of amenities, of food. I look at food reviews. Here's another tip. Oftentimes if you're going to a hotel that has bad food reviews, it's going to be a lot of heavy drinking.
1: That's an interesting point. I never thought about that. It's just the the way it is. People are there for the party and not the food. And don't you find you enjoy food so much more in sobriety? Like you really start to see all the other lovely pleasures in life besides alcohol?
2: It's So different. It's so different. I did not enjoy my time in the kitchen nor learning about foods and the culinary craft at all when I was drinking. And now it's become a passion you know, I seek out chef events and chef tables where I can pick up tips and tricks and interesting things. And we look for the little um, Caribbean mom-and-pop shops around town to go to, and
1: it's just fun. Yeah. Yeah, right. There's so much more to life, but, isn't there? Yeah. My Which is what your blog is showing. all about, and I love that. My
2: blog is about that Sober Julie. Uh, it's Life Straight Up, and it's that's exactly all it is. It's just Life Straight Up. You're going to – in fact, on the Facebook page, I think I'm starting some lives. I'm going to try once a week to do some sort of a mental health or wellness uh, live where I talk about things. Next week, I think I'm going to talk about anxiety awesome, and ways to cope with anxiety
1: and things like that.
2: But I the that. We happen to be
1: recording this on Bell's Let's Talk Day. It just happens yes. to be today on the day that, uh, that we're recording it. So, so it's that time of year where people are reminded to, to talk about this stuff and shed the stigma of, of uh, mental illness, or I, I don't even like to call anxiety mental illness. It's so normal for so many of us. It's it's as normal as, like, eczema or, you know, hair well, on it's your everywhere chin. Like, I, it's part of life, like, and there's ways know, to deal with it.
2: I had a friend say to me, why does everybody these days seem to have anxiety, blah, blah, blah? And I said, well, stop, stop for a second and think about it. Think about as little as 30 years ago what, life, what life's pace was like. It may be quick to get to work, and while you're work, you're quite busy, blah, blah, blah. You come home, and then there is downtime. What I'm saying to my friend is this. I said, now, when you're at, you know, in your kid's school, you're sitting in the parking lot waiting for them to come out of the school. What do you do? She says, oh, I usually browse my phone. I said, so that's not downtime. Mm-hmm. The phones, the screens, everything that we have, which is instant gratification, and mm-hmm. it occupies us, it also overstimulates us.
1: Right, right. It's it true, and especially, like, right now is quite an explosive time politically, and there's lots of, you know, mm. lots of polar opinions and lots of back mm-hmm. and forth. And, like, if you want to just get upset, look at the article in your news feed and read the comments. I mean, no, <laughs> right?
2: it's so true. I mean, that's the thing. We're inundated with information. Yeah. So, number one, we are on higher alert than we ever have been. And then the issues themselves are concerning. So raise that up higher. And we're almost hitting anxiety without even leaving the house. Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're going to be talking about some of that. Hey, one last thing that I want to talk to you about before we wrap up our hour is that finally you and I are going to meet in New York. Yeah, we are,
2: baby. In May
1: at the She Recovers in New York City conference. May 5th to 7th, 2017. There's a handful of tickets left on sherecovers.co. And there's a blogger team, so there's 10 of us um, recovery bloggers that are going to be there, Julie, myself included. And we'll be hosting an event on the Friday afternoon where uh, people that are coming for the conference can meet all of us bloggers and interact, and we'll have a bit of a panel session, I think, and then throughout the weekend we're going to be sitting in a booth taking turns live blogging, doing um, pictures with people if they want, social media posts. I'm so excited to meet you and I'm so excited to meet the readers and the audience and the, the people that, oh my God, it's going to be the biggest group hug ever, don't you think?
2: I need lots of hugs. I want. Yeah, I mean, the sober Bloggers, I think when we all meet each other, that's going to be just over the top because so many of us, like you and I, have known each other and the thing is when you're a sober blogger and you're in the space if you're communicating with another sober blogger it's not surface communication it is deep get to know you share your stuff Mm -hmm. so when you know we're coming we're coming from an angle where we all feel like we're relatives it's so interesting and it's going to be such a big hello yeah and then to meet so many other weekend women over the weekend who are all
1: committed to their own well-being how cool is that beautiful And then the icing on the cake is that the four keynote speakers are Glennon Doyle Melton from Momastery, Elizabeth Vargas from 2020, Marianne Williamson from, like, the universe. (laughs) I know. I'm, like, from everywhere. And Gabby Bernstein, who is, like, one of the most amazing, uh, like, life-changing writers that's out there. So, oh, my gosh. I just... I'm feeling like a fangirl, and it's still months away. I know. (laughs) I'm thinking about what I'm going to wear and if I need to change uh, my hairstyle, you know, and, like, am uh, so excited awesome. about everything. I'll wow. be there well, in
2: Birkenstocks. It's all about comfort. Let's get real.
1: Yeah, right. This is, <laughs> because there's, it is. It's going to be a really comfortable just, uh, women energy weekend. So yeah. apologies to our male listeners. I know there's not a ton of male listeners for this show, but, uh, you know, sometimes we do need to have gender-specific events, especially in recovery, because sometimes what we're talking about really is gender-specific. And so I I love that this is a girls' weekend that's all about recovery and and togetherness. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, just before we close, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners, anything you'd like to say to anyone that's, like, thinking about sobriety or in early sobriety or just – later in sobriety, but maybe hitting a wall? Like Any, any words for those listeners?
2: Sure. I'll, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to anybody who has ever opened SoberJulie.com because sitting on this side of a computer typing away, it means a lot when I see that somebody has looked at something. Um, anybody, if you're approaching sobriety and you're even thinking about it, if you have questioned your relationship with alcohol and you're not sure, I would say to you, if a person didn't have some kind of issue with alcohol, it's highly doubtful they would have that thought. That's just the first thing I'm going to say. Whether or not you do is up to you. But know that if you do need to change your life, it's completely possible. It's so worth it. Life is meant to be experienced with, an, with open eyes and open heart every day in every aspect. Not to give away chunks of it to booze. You know, I used to drink at things if I, you know, stress, I deserve this, whatever. It was like almost angry drinking, even to celebrate it got to that point. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do that. There's a way to experience life, the ups, the downs, and everything. To people who are in recovery, if you are facing challenges, we are there for you. You're not alone. You've got the rooms. Come online. Talk to me. Message me on the fan page. Super Julie Doing Life fan page. I'm here for you. I talk, and the people in the community on that fan page will talk to you. You know, any, it's true. Any man can fight us the battle of just one day. We only are blessed with this single day of recovery or of life. So we have to be in it and in it with gratitude. I would encourage you to seek out this humility and gratitude feeling and find a sponsor, somebody you trust. You don't have to give them the title of sponsor. If you're not comfortable with that, don't do that. But find somebody who can become the person that you bounce things
1: off of. Love it. Love it. Wise, wise words from a a warm, kind heart. Sober Julie, Julie of Mm. (laughs) soberjulie.com. And um, thank you so much for your time today. I, I could talk to you for a week straight, and I'm really excited that we're going to be meeting soon so that we can take a stab at that, see how long we can talk without taking a breath. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I love it. Stay on the line, and, uh, and I'll talk to you again off air in just a moment, okay? Don't hang up until I uh, get back to you here. Listeners, you've been listening to The Bubble Hour. I'm Jean from unpickledblog.com. I've been speaking with Julie of soberjulie.com. You can email me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at blogtalkradio.com slash I'm on Facebook, uh, you can find me on Unpickled, you can find the Bubble Hour on Facebook, and you can find Sober Julie on Facebook, too. So that's it for this week's Bubble Hour. Thanks for being with us. Everyone, take good care.
0: I own it, I it, not proud, but that was me. want to be